0: So I heard Steve Brown tell this story about a Florida woman. The headline read, Florida woman stops alligator attack using a small Beretta pistol. So, yes, this is a story of self-control and marksmanship by a brave, cool-headed woman with a small pistol against a fierce predator. Here's her story in her own words. While out walking along the edge of a pond just outside my house in the villages, with my soon-to-be ex-husband discussing property settlement and other divorce issues, we were surprised by a huge 12-foot alligator which suddenly emerged from the murky water and began charging us with its large jaws wide open. She must have been protecting her nest because she was extremely aggressive. If I had not had my little Beretta 25 caliber pistol with me, I would not be here today. Just one shot to my estranged husband's kneecap was all it took. <laughs> the gator got him easily, and I was able to escape by just walking away at a brisk pace. The amount I saved in lawyer's fees was really incredible, and his life insurance was a real big bonus. Now, obviously, it's not a true story. But then again, I'm not sure because the headline does read Florida Woman. You know any time, sorry, Paul Walker, you know any time a headline begins Florida Man or Florida Woman, then you know you're in for something crazy. Just Google it. Just Google Florida Man and see what pops up, and you'll be like, really? Yeah. But I had a good laugh when I heard that, so... uh, I had to share it with you. And you may not know this, but I have to start a sermon off with a joke at least once a year in order to keep my preaching credentials up to date. I don't make the preaching rules. That's just how it works. So there's my sermon begins with a joke for you until next year. But a man did die for us and sometimes we forget that the benefit of his death is incredible. And the Corinthian church Forgot that. They began to see God as if he were an alligator lurking in the waters, ready to pounce on and eat them up. We too might be tempted to think about God this way. That he's some alligator waiting to pop up out of the waters and to eat us up. And then surprisingly, we may be even tempted to see grace this way. Some people are afraid of grace, afraid to imagine God being so good and so loving as he says he is. Robert Capon said, free grace, dying love, and unqualified acceptance might as well be a 15-foot crocodile the way we respond to it. All of our protestations to the contrary, we will sooner accept a God we will be fed to than one we will be fed by. For some of us, God's grace and his favor and his kindness and his love might as well be a 15-foot crocodile the way we respond to it. We protest that grace can't really be amazing. And so we more readily accept a God that we might be fed to rather than the one who longs to feed us. Listen, God is not a 15-foot alligator waiting to eat you up. He loves you. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. And so we don't have to go looking for some other Savior, one that we manufacture, one that we think how he should be and how we determine how he should be. We can accept the gentle and lowly Jesus of the Bible with no ifs, ands, or buts. But what about this? But what about that? None of that. We can accept him as he says he is. As we are reminded in the Belgic Confession, which was written way back in 1561, it says, but this mediator whom the Father has appointed between himself and us, ought not terrify us by his greatness so that we have to look for another one according to our fancy? For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. We don't have to be terrified of God so that we go looking for another Savior. No one loves us the way Jesus does. So listen up closely, Christian, because if you are one who is tempted to doubt God's love for you, if you were one who is tempted to think of God as a 15-foot crocodile, then I've got some good news for you this morning. There is nothing that you can ever do to make God stop loving you. And some of you need to hear that right at the beginning of the sermon because some of you are carrying the guilt, the weight of the guilt and shame because of things you have done. And you're wondering how God could love someone like you with what you've done. Some of you feel like failures this morning. You feel like a failure as a parent? Who doesn't? You feel like a failure in your marriage. You feel like a failure as a student. You feel like a failure as a teenager, failure as a child, failure as a disciple. And you wonder how in the world God could love you. I mean, surely he must be sick of you by now, right? Well, who hasn't felt like that at some point? All of us. So if you're here today and you're discouraged and you're downcast because of things you have done or things you haven't done, and you just want to quit, maybe quit life. And you're wondering why God even puts up with you. And you're wondering if He even likes you. Let me give you some good news. There is nothing that you can ever do to make God stop loving you. Gerhardus Voss, a dead Dutch theologian, said, The reason God will never stop loving you is that he never began. The reason God will never stop loving you is because he never began to love you. Voss was reflecting on Jeremiah 31.3, which says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So the reason God can't stop loving you is because he never began loving you. Think about that. Let that sink in. If you are a Christian, God has always loved you in Christ in eternity past. And while you're letting that sink in this morning, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're still still looking at this last verse at these three Trinitarian phrases, and today we're going to talk about that very love, the love of God, the love of God the Father. So look at 2 Corinthians uh, 13, verse 14, and hear the word of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So when Paul mentions God here, he's referring to God the Father. So when you come across Trinitarian verses like this one in the New Testament and you see the Spirit mentioned and you see Jesus mentioned, but you don't see the Father specifically mentioned and only God is mentioned, it's a reference to God the Father. So Paul wants the Corinthians to know and to feel the love of God the Father. He already told them at the beginning of this letter that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He told them in chapter 6 that they were sons and daughters. 2 Corinthians 6.18, he says, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And here's why Paul says this. Because the Corinthians were acting like orphans. Acting as if they had no father in heaven who loved and cared for them. So as Paul closes out this letter, he wants to remind them once again that they are not orphans. That they have a father in heaven who loves and cares for them. And who doesn't need that reminder periodically? I know I do. I always need to be reminded that I live in a fathered world and that it's not up to me to pull things off. It's not up to me to change people. It's not up to me to change situations. I am so prone to live as an orphan. Are you? When you forget that your identity is in Christ and you start acting like an orphan, You begin to feel alone. You become anxious about your needs money, health, relationships, family. You begin to feel condemned. And you're gonna have this ever nagging sense, this uh, hum, low hum of guilt and shame. And you become defensive. And boy, who doesn't do that? And you always have to be right. And you live in the fear of man. You work so hard to please everybody, and you're unable to tolerate criticism, and you compare yourself with other people, and you're ungrateful, and you complain, and you're bitter. And deep down, if you can get real and face what's in your heart, you might even be angry with God about what's happening in your life. That is living like an orphan. And that's not how God's children should live. Our Father in heaven wants us to feel loved. That's what Paul is praying for in verse 13. Paul wants the Corinthians not to just know, not to have head knowledge, not to just comprehend. He wants them to feel God's love, to sense his love. And I'm not talking about just emotions here. I'm not talking about the warm fuzzies. Not that kind of feeling but a feeling of certainty, a settled calm that comes over your heart. A No matter what I feel, I feel and I know for certain that God loves me. And you only get that by looking outside of yourselves to Christ. Puritan John Owen said this about God's love. So much as we see of the love of God, so much shall we delight in him and no more. Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from him. But if the heart be once much taken up with this, the eminency of the Father's love, it cannot choose but be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. This, if anything, will work upon us to make our abode with him. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Exercise your thoughts upon this very thing, the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father, and see if your hearts be not wrought upon to delight in him. I dare boldly say, believers will find it as thriving a course as ever they pitched on in their lives. Sit down a little at the fountain, and you will quickly have a further discovery of the sweetness of the streams you who have run from him will not be able after a while to keep at a distance for a moment it's the love of god that will draw your heart to him every other discovery about who god is will make your your soul flee from him if you don't know that he loves you And so if we are ever to really enjoy the Lord, and that's why you were created, you were made so that you woke up this morning and said, I am going to enjoy God today. That's why you were created, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. So if we are ever really to enjoy the Lord, which is the reason why we were created, we must begin to really believe and feel and sense his deep love for us. If we don't understand his love, then we won't delight in him. But when you begin seeing and sensing the love of God for you, you won't be able to stay away from him, and you won't view him as a 15-foot crocodile. So let me ask you, do you feel loved today? Do you feel that you are his adopted son or daughter, or are you acting like a scared orphan, or a secure son or daughter? Which one describes you today, right now, on January 9th, 2022? With all that's happening in your life, all that's happening in your heart, which one are you, an orphan, or a son, or a daughter? What's happening in your life right now that you are trying to handle on your own, that you're stressing about? Or you've been thinking that it's all up to you to fix things. Well, if you need help in discovering, if you've been acting contrary to who you are in Christ, here's what it looks like when you forget that you are God's child and you begin to orphan yourself. You function like an orphan when you worry about and doubt God's love and care for you. You function like an orphan when you worry about and doubt God's love and his care for you. But the son or daughter rests in God and in his never-ending love. So orphans worry. Orphans chew their nails. Orphans pace the floor. Orphans toss and turn in their bed at night. Orphans get on social media to, to numb the realities of what's going on in the world because they don't want to face it. So orphans worry, but sons and daughters trust. Remember, one of the reasons that Paul writes to the Corinthian church is that they were being tempted to go back under the Mosaic law. They were worrying that they needed to do something to earn forgiveness, to earn grace, to earn God's favor. They were being pressured by those false teachers, the super apostles, to come back under the old covenant in order to be justified, in order to be declared righteous, in order to be forgiven. And so they were functioning like orphans, not the sons and daughters who were already justified and already qualified for the inheritance. You function like an orphan When your relationship with God is seen through the lens of success and failure. Think about that. You function like an orphan when your relationship with God is seen through the lens of either I have been succeeding or I have been failing. I have been not sinning or I have been sinning. The son or the daughter rests in the truth that they are absolutely loved, absolutely forgiven, absolutely welcomed, and absolutely cherished by God. Whether they're good or whether they're bad. Orphans focus on their failures. Sons and daughters rest in Jesus' righteousness. The orphan is defensive when accused of error Or weakness. Let me say that one again. The orphan is defensive when accused of error or weakness. Who doesn't struggle with this? I know I do. It's amazing how easy I get defensive, but the son or daughter is open to criticism because they rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So orphans can't handle criticism. Sons and daughters have God's favor so they don't fear what people think of them, even if the criticism is true. The orphan is a competent analyst of other people's sins and failures and weaknesses. So the orphan, man, they are really good at pointing out everybody else's problems, right? The son or daughter is able to freely confess their faults to one another because they know that no matter what, they are loved by their Heavenly Father. So orphans focus on other people's sins. Sons and daughters freely confess their sins. You know, you're functioning like an orphan when you are focusing on other people's sins, on what everybody else is doing wrong. You're obsessing over it. You're thinking about it. You're talking about it to everybody else instead of looking in the mirror. But sons and daughters can look in the mirror and freely confess their sins. So, here's how you can tell if you're functioning as an orphan these things are true of you, you feel alone. You're anxious over your needs, money, health, relationships, family. You feel condemned or guilty. You're defensive. You want to be right all the time. You live in the fear of man. You try so hard to please everybody and you're absolutely devastated when somebody doesn't like you. You're unable to tolerate criticism. And you compare yourself with others and you're ungrateful and you complain and you're bitter and you're angry with God. Listen, whatever is happening in your life, you are not alone. You have a father in heaven and he loves you and he is everywhere working in and through everything that is happening in your life to bring you good. Not to make you miserable, to bring you good. So you can take a deep breath right now because everything the Bible says about God's love, it's true. And the death of Jesus is proof that everything the Bible says about God's love is true for us and it's true for you. And we see the love of God that Paul is talking about here in verse 14. We see it written in all caps, underlined italicized, bold, 80-point font in Romans 8, 34 to 39. You're familiar with the passage. Let me read it to you. And notice how he points out God's love here. He says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who shall separate us For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what I just noticed as I read that? I usually read nor things present, nor things to come as like eternal. But I think probably Paul probably has in mind nor things to come this week. Like Thursday afternoon, somebody here is going to get an email or a phone call or news on Thursday afternoon, and that thing to come on Thursday afternoon is not going to separate you from God's love. So it's not just an eternity thing. It's next week. It's next month. It's this summer. Whatever happens in your life is not going to be able to separate you from God's love. Paul is telling us here that God gave up his son because he loves us. He did not spare his own son precisely because he loves us. And nothing can separate us from that love, no matter what happens on Thursday afternoon of this week. And then Paul lists several things here that cannot separate us from God's love, but these things sound like they would be able to separate us from his love, don't they? Listen to them. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in creation. Those things sound like if there's anything that can separate you from God's love, it's got to be one of those. And if you've experienced any of the things that Paul lists here, you might start to feel that God doesn't love you. But all of those things cannot separate you from his love. And this is Paul's list here in Romans 8. But what is it for you? What has happened in your life? What is happening in your life right now that makes you question whether God loves you and cares for you or not? What has happened or is happening right now that makes you wonder, does God really love me? Does he care about me? I mean, if we're honest, there are times... And we have all experienced it. There are times where things are going so bad, and we begin to wonder if God is good. And we begin to wonder, does he really love me? Does he really care? But catch what Paul is saying here. Suffering is not proof that God doesn't love you. Suffering is proof that even in the midst of the most awful things that can happen in this world, God still loves you. In all these things, in all these things that we suffer, in all these things that break our hearts, in all these things that keep us up at night, all these things that take away our appetite so we stop eating and we start losing weight and wasting away, All these things that stress us out, all these things that make us go through a whole box of Kleenex, in all these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. But more than conquerors through what? Are we more than conquerors through his power? Are we more than conquerors through his strength? Are we more than conquerors through his might? Well, what does Paul say? It might surprise you. He says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Wow, I I didn't see that coming. I expected to see strength, power, might. But Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This Greek word here for more than conquerors is just one word in Greek, but it basically means to be overwhelmingly triumphant and victorious in Christ. Through him who loved us. It's not through our strength. It's not through our will. It's not through our power. It is through the love of God that we are more than conquerors. And where do you experience the nothing can separate us love of God? That's described here in Romans 8. You experience it at the cross where Jesus died for our sins. It's it's the gospel. That's where you experience it. And notice, too, Paul says that God's love is in the past tense through him who loved us. Why? Why does Paul mention God's love in the past tense? Because I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, when I'm going through things that I don't want to go through, when things happen that I didn't invite into my life, And when I'm experiencing tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and danger and sword and all of these Romans 8-like conditions, I want to know that God loves me in the here and now, in the present. I want to know and to feel and to sense his love right now as I go through all of these things that I don't want to go through. So maybe Paul should have said, through him who loves us, present tense, We might be tempted to think that, but there's a reason why Paul describes God's love in the past tense. And yes, of course, please hear me, God loves us in the present while we suffer. Paul is not saying that God only loved us in the past. He's not saying that God does not love us right now in the present because he tells us nothing can separate us from God's love. So yes, God loves us in the present, but why does Paul put it in the past tense? Why mention the past love of God for people who are suffering in the present? Well, the reason why Paul speaks of God's love in the past tense is because the cross where Jesus died for our sins is the summit of God's love. It's the highest point of God's love. The highest point of God's love is not what he's doing for you in your life right now. It's not him answering your prayers right now. The highest point, the apex, the pinnacle, the summit of God's love is not what he's doing in your life right now. It's what he did for us in the past at the cross when Jesus suffered for us. That means then that to experience God's love in the present as you go through whatever it is you're going through, you have to climb the summit of his love in the past at the cross. Do you want to see And feel and sense God's love for you right now, then get to the cross. Get to the cross because that is where you see the love of God on full display and at full volume. And that's why nothing can separate us from the love of God because God's forever love was shown at a moment in time in history at the cross, in the past. But you may be here today in the present thinking, I don't believe in a God like that. I don't believe in a God who would love me in spite of all the bad things I do, in spite of my sins, in spite of my rebellion. I don't believe that stuff is true. But don't you wish you did? Don't you wish you did believe in a God who loves like this? Don't you wish that you did believe in a God who loved you so much that he gave his only son for you? You may say you don't believe all the stuff that I've been talking about, but wouldn't it be great if you did? Don't you wish that you did? You can. You just cry out to Jesus. Will you come to Jesus today? Maybe you never have. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Will you repent? Which means just to turn. Turn away from you and turn to God. Will you repent Own up to your sin. Own up to your rebellion. And all you got to say is, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're looking for God's love and care for you, don't look necessarily at the present. If he's answering your prayers or not, if he's doing something about that situation, don't look there. Look to the past, to the cross. F.B. Meyer, a dead Baptist pastor, described God's love this way. The love of God for you is like the Amazon River flowing down to water a single daisy. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a wonderful picture? Wouldn't you like to belong to a God like that? I don't think F.B. Meyer would mind me adding two words to his sentence. He's already dead, so I'm going to do it anyway. The love of God the Father for you is like the Amazon River flowing down to water a single daisy. The Corinthians desperately needed to hear that. And some of you need to hear that today. So stop resisting and just take it in. Feel his love like a tidal wave come and wash over you this morning. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care if you yelled at your kids this morning getting ready for church. And some of you did. I don't care if you got in a fight with your spouse in the car this morning on the way to church. And some of you did. I don't care if you're still mad at them. And some of you are. Let the Amazon River of God's love wash over you today. And remember, there is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. God will never stop loving you because he never started loving you. He always has. Will you bask in that eternal love today? You can actually taste and see and feel and sense his never started so he will never stop love at this table today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let's close with a story about a woman who finally got it. Who finally got the gospel after years of struggle. Years of feeling like her Heavenly Father did not love her. And how she suddenly felt And sensed the love of her heavenly father. After many years of fearing that he was just disgusted with her. And sick of her. Tired of her. She finally quit having these silly dark thoughts of God. She quit seeing him as a 15 foot crocodile who was just waiting to eat her up. May her story help you see the very heart of God the father for you his child this morning. She said this. One day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter, and I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline, it was too high, but I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was and I rather joyfully pinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. I had not realized the impact that that event and others like it had on me Not believing God concerning his delight in me and in the gracious nature of my relationship with him, this memory returned to me. As I remembered these scenes from the past, I saw that through the years I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I had not been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel. That by faith in Christ and His perfect atoning sacrifice, He now loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, He has made me beautiful and pleasing to Him forever. I told our counselor that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory and said that I guess if God the Father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, He would forget the shirt and hug me. You still don't understand fully, my counselor said. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed with that realization. I'm beginning to realize that my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung upright. God would answer my prayer. God would answer if my prayer was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. And since I knew how I had failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up on the line and tried to be away when God got home, so to speak. It is the fact that my Father delights even in rusty shirts that moves this most flinty heart of mine to really desire a life disciplined to seek him and find him, and by his power at work in me to live a life of faith expressing itself in love. What a joy to know our needs are a window to God, not an obstacle that makes him disgusted with us. Isn't that good? So is God. So is your Father. He gave his one and only son for you on the cross. So look into his fatherly heart this morning and sense how boundlessly he loves you and let it warm your heart and set it aglow with thankfulness. Come and sit down a little at the fountain of his love and you will quickly have a further discovery of the sweetness of the streams. And you who have run from Him and have been running from Him, you will not be able after a while to keep at a distance for a moment. So let this be the banner that hangs over us as we take communion today. Jeremiah 31, three, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He is not a God that you will be fed to. He is a God who wants to feed you right here at this table today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Who you are in your essence and your nature is not who we conceive you to be. We could never dream up. We could never collectively put together all our brains and come up with a God as good and loving and merciful and kind as you. Thank you that you are not the way we imagine you to be. Thank you that you are. Love and you showed your love for us in the past by sending your son to die on the cross for our many, many, many disgusting sins. And thank you that you have given your spirit to us as a deposit, guaranteeing our eternity with you on the new earth where we will finally be free, and finally be able to glorify and to enjoy you forever. Hasten the day, hasten the day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and help us, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.